0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Last with me, Lucy Baxter, as featured on BBC Radio 4 Extra's Podcast Hour and BBC Radio Manchester. Joining me today is the new High Sheriff of Lancashire, Mr Edwin Booth. Edwin is also the Chair and CEO of Booth's, a much loved chain of supermarkets, mainly in the Northwest of England. How are you today?
1: I'm really good, Lucy, thank you. It's lovely to talk to you.
0: And you. So you're the fifth generation of the family to lead the business since Booth's was founded in 1847. Can you take me back to growing up in Lancashire and like with your family and the business what it was like for you as a child?
1: Yeah well you know um, as a child right from the beginning I I knew that my dad was involved with the grocery business and uh, because he kept bringing samples back things to try and um, I can remember him bringing back um, marshmallow mushrooms with coconut on the top and things like that and then he'd bring lots of Unusual products like tinned liver burgers. I mean, they were absolutely revolting, really. But you know, we we had to try those out on burger buns and things like that. So we were constantly trying out new things at home. And um, I, I went to a primary school in, in in Broughton, and then I think my grandfather was quite influential in um, suggesting that I went away to boarding school. And so I didn't have any any say in the matter. I was sent off to board when I was eight years old. Uh, to Kirby Lonsdale, uh, which of course in those days was in Westmoreland, which is now part of Cumbria. And uh, from there, I was uh, sent down to Angle, Northamptonshire. So for a large part of my life, I spent half my time away from Lancashire. And then my father and his father were very, very keen that I should join the business straight away, because in those days, they didn't believe that university was going to be any use to me. As a retailer, um, I would disagree with that today, to be honest with you, because it's a very complex business. Um, but in those days, literally at the age of I'd only just turned 18, and I joined the business as a um an operator in the central warehouse driving forklift trucks and putting orders up for the stores. And um, that was a little bit of a culture shock because you know a lot of listeners would probably know that, you know, when you go to boarding school, you're, you're there with quite a lot of privileged people, people that come from backgrounds where people can afford private education and it's not perhaps a very representative mix of society and so when i ended up in the warehouse i suddenly realized that actually it wasn't a warehouse it were a warehouse because (laughs) that's how you call it in lancashire and i was with some amazing people who of course were really solid lancashire folk and they really took me into their arms and um they used to call me young mr edwin And uh, it was brilliant. They used to give me a piece of cake for the coffee break and everything. And I suddenly realized that, you know, things like your coffee break was called lunch. Uh, Whereas I was, I I believe that lunch was at like one o'clock in the, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, um, then, Then, you know, dinner and supper and tea, it all meant different things in Lancashire speak. And I absolutely loved it, actually, to be honest with you. What what it taught me was just how warm people in this business are, because it's an old business and we're like a massive family river that have been here for a long time. In fact, next year, 175 years. And that was a really good start for me before I um, started to experience different elements of the business, the retail side and then. When I was 21, um, I got the opportunity, when well, I was a bit younger than that, about 20, I think, to become a trainee buyer. And that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Because right at the very beginning, um, the director in charge of buying, he said, there are two things you've got to do in this business. One is buy well, and the other is sell well. And if you don't buy well, the shops can't sell well. And I've never forgotten that. It's a very, very simple thing, but actually it's what every retailer should, um, should understand
0: and back then how many um shops were open around the county
1: i think in those days i'm trying to remember now lucy it's it's a long time ago because we don't actually we only, have, we only have one store open now in the same place that was there when i was 18 uh which is incredible when you think about it because we've had lots of new ones we've got 27 now i think we had about 17 then And I was talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, I could actually get in the car, I could drive around every single booth store in one day and the one that was furthest away was in Kendall.
0: And so when you were growing up before you were 18, I guess like you said you went to boarding school so you you didn't sort of have like a Saturday job help in there or anything. Um, What was the work ethic that was installed into you then as a child? Because obviously sort of your family have been so involved in it
1: yeah it, it's an interesting one that lucy actually because um there was this very sort, sort of strong sense of duty that this is something you do because you're you're in the male line, and uh, this sounds dreadful today but in those days um the males and the family were given preference and that that isn't the case anymore i'm happy to say um but that's the way it was and i, I did do some saturday work i did i did holiday work in actual fact at lane and ashton in preston um, I used to go down on my bike and uh, work at the Lane End store and I was paid out of petty cash, I literally had to put my hands out and the manager just poured coppers and pennies and the odd sort of uh, what in those days was um, um, a two shilling piece <laughs> into my hand and I stuffed my pockets and rode home. It was very, very um, informal, I mean you just wouldn't get away with that these days um but i wouldn't say that i was imbued with a work ethic but what i did have is a very strong duty to the founder's original idea the founder edwin henry booth is my great-great-grandfather and he was an orphan boy um, between the ages of 11 and 17 he was an extraordinary young man and he wrote this story his autobiography called shadow and sheen and i'd read that and i found it incredibly inspiring and i thought the least i can do I, I owe it to him to do my bit of this business, whatever I'm doing, whether I'm buying, selling or moving goods to the best of my ability. And that's always been a driver for me for the last you know, 45 years or so.
0: That's that's really interesting, again, through the family and the duty. I hadn't thought of that. So that's really interesting mm-hmm. to hear. So whilst you've been CEO, um, how has Booth's changed and how's it sort of developed since you're a child?
1: Uh, It's developed so many different ways, um, and the the way in which the family interact with the business has changed very, very many ways. Um, I became the chairman of the business back in 1997, and in those days, you know, we didn't have any titles like CEO or MD or anything like that. and You just have a chairman, you had a board of directors. Um, And, you know, right in the very early days, I think it's fair to say that um, we had all the goods coming into a central warehouse. And it was called wholesale and the reason why it was called wholesale is because we used to wholesale out to the stores the stores could almost decide exactly what they wanted to stock so you had 17 slightly different interpretations of what booths looked like uh, and that included the logos on the shops they were slightly different as well and one of the things that i did at a very early stage was actually make sure that all logos throughout the business were the same we started to move towards um, common um, stock principles so that people moving from one store to another would find the same products and, um, and it was in a sense it was quite difficult morphing from what had been a very very self style business into something that was a little bit more like a, a retail multiple and I think it's fair to say uh, Lucy that we probably took it a little bit too far actually um, up to about sort of you know seven or eight years ago we became almost too much like a little multiple and over the last four years, um, I've made some very significant changes again in terms of how we, um, how, how we nurture and develop the, the original culture and bring that to the front of the business. And we've got a, a fabulous um, purpose now, which is written on a, on, a, on a page. We call it Purpose on a Page. Um, on the back of the page is the business plan, which changes each year. And every single employee has a, a Z card, which actually opens out and has a purpose and right at the end of the purpose under focus it says three things it says people product place and it's in that order for a very good reason and that is because people come first both our customers our colleagues and our suppliers in this business and that little that focus came about when I was literally on holiday at a bar having a beer with a stranger I'd never met before. Who said, "What do you do?" I said, "Well, I'm a grocer." Oh, come on, really? What do you do? I said, "Well, we've, we've got you know, 27 stores throughout the northwest of England," and he said, "How would you describe your business?" And I just said, "People, product, place," and that stuck. And so that's what today's booths is all about. And um, you know, we've we've always sold self. Um, good on a self-service basis my father actually converted the stores in the old days from counter service to self-service um but we have now an arrangement with amazon for example we we sell a huge number of products into amazon every week as they're growing their food business we are one of their suppliers and the other thing we have developed over the years is a central manufacturing and packing function so quite a lot of what we sell we actually make and pack here in preston um and uh We've also got now a, would you believe, you've probably never heard of this, this is called fruit butchery. Can you imagine a fruit butcher? (laughs) They're the guys who actually chop up the fruit and uh, put it into those little packs, you know, the healthy packs that you buy for lunch sometimes. Mm -hmm. And we don't just produce at the booths, we produce it for other businesses as well. So that's just a a sort of flavour of some of the things that have changed over the years. but putting people right at the front of the, the culture, the way we operate the business, um, has make, has put us in a really good position during the COVID year because people have felt very, very safe at our business. And Safety First has been exactly where we came, came from last March. We had to make people safe working in the business. We had to make customers feel safe. And we had to actually had to let customers know that we're still you know, wanting to sell them lovely food and drink and we're going to do it in a very safe way. And, um, I think that has been very important to so many people,
0: yeah, I think, as well, sort of as I was shielding, I was went into booths was like one of the first supermarkets, and it was incredibly safe and it is it is that that sort of personal feeling you do get when you go in and sort of homely, I'd say, very like comfortable and lovely. um yeah. so for people from the who live in the south, whenever I say oh have you heard of Boots and they're like what's Boots and I'm when you try and describe it how would you describe it because I hear some people say it's sort of the northern waitrose and what what sort of level would you describe it for people who might not have heard of it
1: well I'd say the waitrose is a southern boots. um I've turned it around the other way I mean loads of people have actually said to me you know you're the best We, we we think you're fantastic why aren't you in the south of England and so on and I mean, the answer for that is quite simple because you know if we were to take on um extra funding and um, you know change the status of the business from being just a, a private business to do that and bring all the money in that would be required it would change at a stroke i think the character of the business and so um what i say to people in the south is look you know this is a business that concentrates on. Selling as much local products as it possibly can, and that's nearly 30% of everything we sell, which is probably the highest in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes us incredibly unique. Um, but we, you know, we, we stock products from all over the world, and it's important that the, the way in which that product is made um, is, is um properly understood by us and then the customer, in a sense, curate a range. Um, which says to the customer this has been made properly you know the beasts have been reared in a humane way Um, the crops are safe as safe as we can possibly guarantee them to be and and so on and so um but bear in mind that you know people in the south for the last year in about 300 postcodes have been able to get quite a lot of boost product through amazon through the ultra fast food initiative the uff initiative and um and that that is now starting to spread throughout the, the UK. There's there's a Manchester depot, which is going live very, very soon. So, you know, it's going to be quite exciting to see booth products available nationally as well as in the Northwest.
0: Yeah. Um, and then for from someone who's from a farming family, I can really see how you support the farmers. And you know, sort of in the in the tills and longton booths, there's there's the signs with the, the local farmers and what they make and and things like that. Was was that always a key aim for Booth's to support locally?
1: I, I don't think it was a key aim in the early days. In the early days, um, when Edwin Henry Booth set the business up, he, he had a lot of expertise in buying tea, in blending tea, created his own blends for, as he described it, the Lancashire Waters. And he actually called his, um, his stores, E-H, E.H. Booth, I think it was, um, the tea establishment. So that's how it started. Tea was the main thing. And of course, that came from abroad. And he became quite an expert. And when he he got into his his 70s, he actually went across to China, would he believe, to go and advise some of the growers in in how to produce the best tea. He was an extraordinary man. And you couldn't just jump on a a plane to Beijing out to Manchester, you had to go by boat. Um, and so, you know, he, he was something of an adventurer, something of an explorer. He wanted to create something unique and special. And that was the first thing that he created. And then almost by default, I think he started to buy the best produce from the north of England that he could probably get, possibly get hold of because in those days, the, the supply networks were much more local anyway. They were much smaller. Um, but bringing things over from abroad was really exotic and so you know he, he then started looking for interesting nuts and dried fruits from the east and um we, we when i was probably quite young about eight or nine years old i can remember some of the carrier bags saying eh booth and co and then underneath it said italian warehouseman and the reason why it said that is because down in london the italian warehouse um, operators were specializing in bringing exotic fruits and um, dried products from the east and um we started packing those many many years ago originally in the center of preston on the top of our old offices um, yes. but now we we have the same packing factory here um not far from where i'm sitting uh bluebell way near longbridge yeah and um so that that's where all those products are packed now so that, that that has carried on for well, probably about a good 130 years 140 years or so
0: there's still the eh booth and co um sort of sign in preston isn't there on I can't remember what street. That's
1: swear- where. Oh, Glover, Glover's Court, yes. Yeah, yes. I see it.
0: Yeah, that's
1: right. That was, that was the old bridge um, across to the accounts department. And then underneath the accounts department, there was, a, there was a cake shop. And the cake shop was supplied out of a bakery, which was on the top floor of the old building, which is, well, it's now Waterstones. But the top floor was a bakery. And everything used to come down a the lift. Then it used to go across that bridge on trolleys and then down another lift into the cake shop. And the reason why that um, bridge looks a little bit like a a bridge in Venice, it's a sort of Venetian style. But if you look at the main facade of the um, the Waterstones bookshop, it is actually Venetian, all the various columns and the archways and so on, because that, at the time, was considered to be quite a sort of smooth thing to do in terms of architecture and design. Um, Obviously, trends and um, tastes move on but that's why it's in the venetian style
0: yeah no I, yeah I, I love that and then how it's sort of still in in the city center like it's still not obviously there now but it's nice to see like the history still there um but i know i know have spoken to a few people for this podcast like cuckoo Jin, and they said on their episode how grateful they were for booths to sort of take their products and like really helped the business in that way so I think just like supporting local and with the pandemic people are doing that more and more and more interested in that now um, I've seen that Booth's has just done a new campaign to support artisan cheesemakers makers. Um, how did that idea come about
1: well that, that came about quite quickly because you'll remember I'm sure uh, back in March last year everything changed so fast You know, when people were worried about, they were worried about being able to get enough food, enough toilet rolls, uh, tin tuna, and things like that, you know, were very hard to get hold of at the time. And and everybody changed their habits overnight in terms of what they bought. But more importantly, um, the the hospitality industry basically closed down. And that had the result of um, actually having a, a very, very adverse impact on quite a number of people in the supply chain. And one of those um, sectors was cheese, and a number of our cheese suppliers suddenly lost about between 60 and 80% of their volume, and that is absolutely devastating for any business. And our Chief Operating Officer, Nigel, with whom I work, who's one of the main board directors who works with me on the um, senior executive, Nigel said, you know, we, we really ought to make a big effort with these people and see if we can promote their products much, much harder and tell people a little bit about what the problem is. And we started doing that. And although we didn't make up for the the deficit, we actually started selling more cheese because people realized that, you know, some of these businesses, frankly, if we weren't gonna buy lots of cheese from them, they were in danger of of going under. And that, of course, we don't want either in the short or long term. Um, So we've done our best to support as many of the smaller businesses we have as far as we possibly can in terms of you know payment terms in terms of what we buy from them what we promote uh, and and so on
0: and i know that you're a very busy man so how much say so do you have sort of on the shop floor level um choosing the produce or sort of visiting the stores
1: mm-hmm. well i do you know um I think over the last sort of three, four years, where we've almost sort of reconfigured the way we operate the business, it's been quite difficult. And during COVID, it's been almost impossible to have a regular visit, um, visiting programme into the stores, although we're gradually starting to switch that back on, which is great. Um, and in fact, one of my employees had made a comment a while ago, we don't see much of the family these days. You know, well, they haven't seen many people from the central office at all, to be honest with you, over the last year and a half so or 14 months so so that that changes um and i think when you've um when you've been a buyer i was a buyer for 18 years probably more actually uh, more like 20 and i bought cheese delicatessen a bit of general grocery um i bought um cooked meats and um and dried meats and exotic things from europe Um, And I spent probably most of my time actually developing the wine business. So I was a wine buyer for about 15 or 16 of those 20 years. And uh, that's something I I, I enjoyed immensely. So it gives you a feel. This experience gives you a feel for product. Um, I love food and drink, I'll be honest with you, and uh, always did. And so, you know, going back to when I joined the business, it wasn't something I thought, oh, gosh, I'm not dead keen on this, actually, because there was lots of food and drink around brilliant, absolutely wonderful. And the big challenge is keeping the pounds off, to be honest with you. Um, But um, what I do do now, we have um, a very, very um, skilled executive, and then they have their their managers um, working with them and the buyers. And these days, um, the buyer actually concentrates just on the product and developing the range they um, work with category controllers who understand the context in other words the category for the whole country who sells what and how and they discuss with the buyer how we're going to fit in in terms of our ranges and then you have supply controllers who actually control the volume and supply of product coming in to the um, center of the business and going out into the stores we used to do all of that as buyers we did the whole lot mm-hmm. um and so because we we did the whole lot i got this feel i'm one of a few actually older members in the industry that have this feel for product and so it's it's absolutely great i will have buyers come and see me here and say look i'm just thinking of buying this what do you think take it home try it out um and then sometimes i'll go to them and say well certain things in our ranges aren't as good as they should be really in my opinion can we have a category review which we would then do um, and sometimes I'll actually be involved in the tasting panel on that and be talking to the supplier and so on. So um, I feel well blessed, really, because I have the chance to lead the business um, at a high strategic level, but I also have the opportunity to influence what we sell and how we sell it. And if people say, Well, Edwin, what is your main job? I think it's one of being a stylist. I'm there to, to sort of protect and promote what the customer sees in the stores and then provide the leadership behind that to make sure that everybody in the business can actually perform to be the best they can be and that's very very important the leadership principles that we've embedded in this business I'm very very proud of it's something which I think I've been leading to for all my business life really in terms of learning from other organizations and from this organization what works best for people going back to people product and place so um so yeah it's a it's a very interesting role
0: I can imagine a buyer is so interesting I, I know um I have a friend who's I think it's sweets or chocolate buyer for boots and she's she always seems to like it seems to be such an interesting job and she's like I can't tell you what's coming out but it sounds exciting <laughs> and I'm like oh can't wait <laughs> um so how many people are in like the whole business so from the top down how or bottom up how many people are employed by Boots
1: uh, we've got around about 3,000 now wow which, which, is, which is quite a lot when you think about it because if you look at all the disciplines you've got the central office and bear in mind that here in the central office we're normally 180 but now there are about 12 of us and um, in the future there'll probably be no more than 60 or 70 people at any one time yeah. because of the new ways of working and those new, those new ways of working um, that we found to be incredibly effective. Um, and we've moved from uh, you know looking at people's performance in terms of how much time they spend on keyboard on screen to tap down to what their output is and yeah. how supportive they are of the business and their teams and their colleagues and it's a completely different sort of human resource dynamic, if you will, and one which I think is much more grown up and, and, and respects the individual more. So that, that's really interesting, the way that's changing here. But then you've got the disciplines in manufacturing, uh, which, which are like sort of low-risk food factories. Then you've got the central distribution side of the business. You've got security. There's a whole security team out there constantly looking out for, uh, for fraud, and you know, both internally and, of course, uh, theft externally with people coming in and, and feeding as well. And then, of course, you've got the store teams, which are supported by a central store team. Um, there's a retail team centrally that provides that link between all our functions here, finance, marketing, buying, category management. The, the, that team is constantly supporting the retailers and, and make it easier for them to understand changes and how to implement those changes and so on. So. It's a multifaceted business, and the the marketing team have a facet, which is design. And so when you look at, for example, in Livum, we've just developed a a wine bar called the Gallery Wine Bar upstairs, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's fabulous. And um, Laura and Lou have been involved in that, with the, um, the innovations manager with Matt, and we've now got a member of the executive, Nick, who's now looking after that as well um so you know there's, there's so much to do in this business there's so many different things you can get involved with
0: yeah so is the wine bar sort of wine tasting in in or what's what is it like
1: well, well what it is um it's a wine bar with about 170 wines available in it, actually displayed on the walls and you can either buy wine by the glass or you can have a bottle between you and you know we'll charge you three pounds to cork it um to take the cork out Uh, We do plates of cold meat, we do plates of, um, you know, cheese, we do fabulous artisan bread. um, You know, we can do tea, coffee and cake uh, later in the day if that's what people want, or maybe a croissant in the morning. Uh, So it's quite sophisticated in many ways, but the really unique bit is that if you want to buy a wine from the range downstairs, which is, what, some 650 different wines, You can buy that pay for it go upstairs put it on the table and say oh we we, we just bought this downstairs would you mind um opening it for us we'd like to enjoy it here um we just charge you three pounds to take the cork out and serve and um that is you know pretty unique really um I, i saw that being done in another business which i really really regard highly um in the ribble valley and um I had to say to the owner, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to copy it here, it's such a brilliant idea, and so we're developing that now, and in fact I'll be calling at some point very, very soon just to see how it's running, you know, try it out, try lunch, yeah. see how it's going, yeah.
0: Yeah, That, that sound, that's just showing how it's, you know, it's not just a supermarket, it's you're progressing it and doing lots of different things like that. Um, what's Boots doing then in terms of like the environment? Because I know a lot of supermarkets are getting stick for like the plastic and things. What's sort of yeah. future for that?
1: It's it, it's it's very difficult because before COVID we made some massive strides in reducing uh, the impact of plastic, particularly. Um, but that almost went into reverse during COVID because people wanted safety, and of course, plastic is one of the safest barriers. In terms of you know preserving food and um, protecting it from um, outside influences, viruses, and so on and so forth. Um, but having said that, Lucy, um, you know, as soon as we can encourage people to buy more loose product, particularly in areas like produce, you know, which traditionally, going back in time, didn't have any plastic on it at all. Um, the sooner we can get back to getting back onto that that curve, if you will, the better. Um, and we are gradually. Um, bringing more and more um, paper-based products in. Um, We're seeing the development of plant-based products as well, but of course, there's a strong argument against that, as indeed there is against plant-based fuels, because it's all very well saying plant-based and that's very natural, but of course it starts to cover more of the landmass with fields just for packaging and fuels. So there's a very, very big debate going on at the moment, but underlying all of that, Um, we're looking at um, programming our distribution better to reduce the number of journeys that we we undertake to make sure that we we move goods in the most efficient way, not just financially, but also from an environmental perspective as well to reduce food miles. Um, We're also um, just about to undertake a massive capital program over the next five years, which replaces all our lights with LEDs in the stores and also uh, puts much more efficient um, and environmentally friendly um, refrigeration into the stores, which will look great. And, of course, the, 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 the effect of all of that is that the actual use of electricity can reduce in our stores by anything up between 35 and 40%, which is absolutely huge. Um, so that's actually very important. But for as long as people want to buy food and drink when they want it, Um, on a convenient basis, then in order to make food convenient, in order to make, to give it a life, then there has to be some form of packaging that will um, help us to to provide that. And so the transition away from plastic, I think, will take a little bit longer than a lot of people would like, to be honest with you. Um, So that's really the short answer to that.
0: Yeah. Um. So if we move away from Booth's, you were chair of the Lancashire Local Enterprise Partnership for, I think, over seven years. And you also chaired the Business in the Community Advisory Board for the Northwest from 2007 to 2014. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: absolutely, yeah. yeah. What
0: was involved <laughs> in those roles?
1: Well, you know, I think from a, a pretty early stage, and given the, the type of business we are, I understood that, you know, we were sort of almost embedded in a lot of communities um, and that business had the power to do a tremendous amount of good. Whereas I think in the national press, often businesses were lambasted for being you know, um, capitalist in their approach, um, as indeed quite a number have been in the past, providing as much money as possible for their shareholders um, and or pension funds that invest in them and so on. So it made me realize that, um, you know, aligning ourselves with other businesses that were similar to our own would be a good thing. And business in the community approached me and said, look, you know, everything that you do here reflects the values that business in the community as an organization has and their president at the time, um, and still is, I think, the Prince of Wales, um, his royal highness. And I have to say that, you know, I had had the opportunity of meeting him on one occasion when we won an award for architecture for our Windermere store, and was quite impressed with his strong beliefs about the environment and about business being able to support, you know, having the power to support society in many, many ways, um, both in terms of helping people in schools, for example, to understand what the world of work is actually like, and to bring them into our our business and say, look, you know, spend half a day here, half a day there, to see what goes on, and helping people to understand how to get their first job and that sort of thing, and. Um, while i was at business in the community i had the opportunity to be involved in employing a new chief executive which we did who was um a, a wonderful person who uh, really sort of got this whole power of good idea and we developed a um a campaign if you will or an initiative called business class and business class was about actually linking more and more businesses with schools because in southern Island, for example that, that just happens you know, they do without even being asked, but they campaign to, to link business with both societal projects and with schools as well. So it was a natural fit for me in many ways. Um, I thought it was great. And um, certainly when I was approached to um, chair the LEP, um, I was actually approached twice. <laughs> the first time I said, oh no, this is far too much. Uh, but on the second occasion, I think it was explained to me rather better in terms of the support I would have. And um, I realized I couldn't do both roles um, as a sort of, you know, um, as a peripheral role. And so then became involved with the lab and that definitely developed a life of its own because we ended up controlling a sort of one and a half billion pound budget, which was absolutely huge. And of course, today, you now see the effect of, for example, the Preston city deal, which I signed with the, um, the, the county and district leaders down in London. Um, a lot of the um, the growth plans, the enterprise zones, the uh, knowledge and skills centre on the enterprise zone at Salmsbury. And now, of course, you see the outgrowth of the um, Advanced Manufacturing Research, Research Centre on the Preston-New Road. That's all being built now to, and that's not just for people in aerospace on the site, it's for industry in Lancashire to learn advanced skills. Um, so I'm pretty excited now to see what, What has happened as a result of those early years because it takes a lot of years to get these things in place so it was interesting it taught me a huge amount about the the public sector um i hadn't really come across them very much my my brother in the business had always been involved with the planners with developing new stores so i was a little bit protected from that i guess um i met some fantastic people in the public sector i really did who were absolutely dedicated to making life better for people in Lancashire. And that, of course, struck a chord with me. I thought, well, that's great. That's what we're here to do. And um, I really enjoyed my time with, with them, I did. I in fact, my wife would tell you today that I probably, if she hadn't sort of said, look, I think you've done enough here, uh, I would have probably still been there now. Because <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the challenge, I'll be honest with you. Um, but back in 2017, it was clear that the Booth business needed a huge amount of love and attention really in terms of how we reconfigure the business and um, address the future and and that's been just as exciting over the last four years
0: and you're also chairman of Preston's Harris Charities which was co-founded by Edwin Henry Booth and what what is that and sort of what's involved there
1: well Originally, when I was in my 20s, um, my father was a trustee of the Harris Charity, and in those days, um, they had an operating side to the charity, which was the Harris Children's Homes on the Garstang Road, going north out of Preston. And that was very unique. That was what was founded by um, Edwin and his, and the co-founders, um, using money from the um, Edmund Harris bequest. bequest. And... He actually helped get the whole thing off the ground by um, purchasing the land. And the the Harris children's homes were born. Back in, I think it must've been about 35 years ago, 34 years ago, it was clear there weren't as many children coming forward for that type of accommodation. And so we made a constant decision that we should really close the site because it was loss-making at the time. Um, And that we did and we sold it to UCLan And um, with the money that was um, paid for that, which I think was something like about 800,000 pounds, we invested that in uh, stocks and shares to develop a fund, which would then um, provide a yield from which we then could support people in difficulty, people in deprivation, people with severe disability, young people, for example, where families were finding it very, very hard to cope, uh, to provide equipment to help with the individual and so on. And also to support people with great talent, but who hadn't got the, the finance behind them to realize that, you know, like musicians, like dancers, um, talented people. And so the, the Harris charity will pay out anything between about 80,000 and 120,000 a year, probably to individuals and groups like that. We support a lot of sports groups, for example, on the basis that they must be. Um, populated with a lot of young people under the age of 25, um, because that's our parameter. Above 25, we can't support. Um, So we have this properly constituted charity now called the the Harris Charity, and and that's what we do. I mean, only recently, for example, I think we um, we supported a a group to develop some new cricket nets um, because lots and lots of young people are going to be learning, their cricket craft in those nets and hopefully will develop a lifelong interest in the in the support in the sport for example um because i'm a great believer in particularly music and sport as two things which can make life so much better for so many people if only they have the chance if they have a the chance to do it you know it's not all about work and it's interesting lucy i spoke to a young person years and years ago and they said they couldn't wait to leave school because they wouldn't have to work anymore um, and that work you know out in society will be much easier it isn't easier it's different um and i think the important thing for employers is to make the work interesting and enjoyable by inspiring people by encouraging people making sure their working conditions are good um and making them feel part of the organization and i think one of the reasons why booths is like it is is because that's what we do here um you know so um you know, hopefully some, some of those young people who enjoy these other things, they have something else to talk about, something else to enjoy, something which helps them relax a little bit. But actually, I think if work is work so much part of our lives, you know, you, you might work from the age of 21, 22 to 65. And these days they are saying you're going to have to work to 75 to get a, a pension anyway. You might as well enjoy it you know, or enjoy the various different work, pieces of work that you do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And another thing, you're the founding trustee of the Prince's Countryside Fund.
1: Mm-hmm. What
0: What's involved with that? I feel like this is so interesting, all the different things you do aside from... Well, that.
1: yeah, Prince's Countryside Fund was a bit of a natural, really. I was in um, business in the community at the time. I was involved with a, a conference down in London I think it was an annual general meeting, and I sat on the table with the chairman um, of the the business in the community at the time, and we had the Prince of Wales on the table with us as well. And and he was encouraging us to, uh, certainly encouraging the chairman of the ITC, to found a new charity, which would help people in remote rural areas, where, for example, post offices were closing, Services were being withdrawn, like you know, bus services into a local town, where it was difficult, particularly for older people, and also for young people trying to access college and that sort of thing, and to develop skills. And, and so I remember Mark saying, "Right, you know, is there anybody who's interested in joining me on this?" And I put my hand up and said, "Yeah, I, I really think this is a brilliant idea. Um, we have had." A strong relationship with rural enterprises for many many years, um, and as far as rural locations are concerned, I live in one, and so had a, a clear understanding of some of the challenges which appertain in those areas. And so it would be 11 years ago now that um, the Prince's Countryside Fund (PCF) was born, and um, we encouraged lots of big food companies to actually sponsor the organisation, and re- in return for that, they can use the, the the logo the white rose logo which we have and um, that appears on certain products as part of their fundraising efforts and the result of that has been that over the last 10 years or so we have probably put a good 10 million pounds back into um, these these areas these societies and to help farms we have a fabulous program called the farm resilience program which is designed to help very very small units family farms and tenant farmers to develop their business and also to develop succession plans for younger people, either people within the family or young people possibly to follow on and to take on the farm. So that that so far has been such a success that it's been recognized by um, the Department of the Environment by DEFRA. Um, And I know DEFRA are very keen to work with us um, on various facets of that, which is good. So that's been a remarkably satisfying bodies to be involved with, to be honest with you. And more recently, I've become the the, the chairman of their nominations committee. And what I have to do there with the rest of the team is to look at the future of the fund, who the trustees are. And just recently, um, we've actually found a replacement for our long-term chairman, um, Lord Lord Don Kerry, who's been a wonderful chairman of the group and uh, who retires in December. So um, there will be a little bit of change over the next six months. And uh, part of my role is to make sure with the chief executive of that that um, goes smoothly and that um, we keep looking forward in terms of identifying bright people who can come into the trust and help it uh, achieve its aims.
0: How do you relax and switch off from all this?
1: So,
0: <laughs> ah. You see, you have so much on the go.
1: <laughs> well, I, I I can tell you exactly what I did last night. I, I, I had a tea with my daughter last night with Charlotte. She very kindly cooked something for me and Kazan was out playing tennis. So um, I went off to into the garden and literally was gardening till it was dark. I had so many little things I wanted to do. So I find that really, really therapeutic. I mean, both Anne and I enjoy that very much. Um, and um, I play tennis sometimes with the Rochester Tennis Club. I enjoy doing that. That's great um i love to cycle and I, I didn't do enough of that over the last three years because i was so busy with business and various other things but more recently i have started to do that more so i jump on my bike and go for uh, an hour or hopefully maybe even two if i've got the time um i've always been fascinated by motor racing so i love to watch the grand prix i love to follow what's going on down at goodwood for example with the the more classic racing cars and sports cars and that sort of thing and i, and I love driving i'm one of those um Terribly geeky people who always identify what the other cars on the road are, and my wife will say, "You know, how on earth do you know what that is?" You know, I, I just I just read avidly about motoring events and about you know motoring history and that sort of thing and so on. And I'm very fascinated by exploration. Um, I used to love climbing when I was younger I did a little bit of rock climbing. I love going out into into the hills. I'll be honest, all that it takes a little bit longer. Um, so. Um, that, that, those are the things I like to do when I can do them, um, you know, and it's uh, it's a real treat, for example, when, you know, for example, I might go up to a Lake District, I did not last year, the year before with my brother, and we went and climbed up Bowfell and had a day out with a picnic, it was absolutely fantastic, you know, and we'll do that again as soon as um, we're able to do so, under the rules.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so many of my friends have like received their certificates from sort of MySco and places from yourself, um, which we always think is such an honor when it's like, oh, Edwin Booth, can I give you a certificate? Um, so you're a huge role model and you've dedicated so much of your time and energy to young people, the future business investment. Um, so it's no surprise that you were awarded a CBE in 2019. What was that day like when you picked up your honor?
1: it was incredible i'll be honest with you it was a massive privilege um it was incredible receiving the letter um I, i've got to tell you that that was on the, the doorstep when we came back from um a, a weekend away we'd been in london for two nights i think and we came back and um it was quite late and we we hadn't eaten or we were deciding what to do and then um, i was picking through the mail and Anne said to me my wife said to me she said Aren't you going to open this one? It says cabinet office. I said, All right, okay, we'll open that. So we opened it and I knew you fell off my chair, I'll be honest with you. It was just absolutely extraordinary, saying that you're not allowed to tell anybody about this until I think it was New Year's Eve. Um, and you know, you're going to be invited down to the palace in in March to receive the CVE, which, which is fabulous. So quick phone call to Northcote Manor, and you know, can you accommodate us? This was at like eight o'clock at night on a Sunday, I think um can, can we come in for a meal which we did actually we had a wonderful meal um and i think i think emma was with us or charlotte i forget which of my daughters was with us at the time but off we went to do that which was fantastic but the actual day um, is quite extraordinary because as a cbe you're taken into a room for a briefing with the danes and the knights um which makes it feel rather special um because the commander's going with the sirs and the danes and everybody else goes into another room which felt really really uh, extraordinary you know I thought what am I doing here talking to ambassadors and all sorts of people um, who were receiving their knighthoods and uh, then when you actually go into the the ballroom to um to receive the award it's all very choreographed and uh, very military um the um Her Majesty's attendants are wonderful people. They're usually forces people, you know, from the Royal Navy and from the Royal Air Force, uh, for example, in the army. Um, Very, very polite, very, very helpful. And thankfully for me, actually, it was Prince of Wales who was actually officiating on the day. Mm. And so it was great to be able to meet him and look him in the eye, because of course, I'd met him on so many occasions with the, the various charitable interventions. Um, and he said, look, it's absolutely wonderful that you're receiving this. And um, and um, he, I never forget him to say, he said, not before time, which I thought was such a sweet thing for him to say. And um, then we talked a little bit about the, um, the need to really drive the Princess countryside Fund forward and get into the countryside and do good and so on. It seems like an age, but it's only about a half a minute. And then of course he has to do the next one and so on. Yeah. Um, but it's a remarkably special day. I had you know, my family with me, and we went off to have a lovely lunch afterwards at the Goring Hotel, which was really very, very special. And then I think, if I remember rightly, we went out to um, to a show in the evening, actually. I think we went to Hamilton that, that evening, uh, which was fantastic. So what a day. It yeah, really was special.
0: Definitely. Um, and then let's not forget that this year, you've just become the High Sheriff of Lancashire. Um, you were the Deputy Lieutenant of Lancashire since 2005, I think. Um, so, how did you become the High Sheriff? And obviously, this is going to look like a different year because of the COVID, still, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, um, and uh, an incredibly difficult, difficult year actually for um, Catherine Penny, who was previous um, High Sheriff, where she was really locked behind a screen for the entire year. Uh, this year, it's slightly different. I do have some appointments lined up for July, August, where I'm hoping to get out to go and make presentations to um, some groups um, later on. And also to see someone, an amazing person um, actually on the Blackpool Coast later on in the year as well. He's done some amazing things. So those, I hope, will be physical meetings Um, over the first few months. um, I mean, it's all been on Zoom, really, and meeting various groups talking about you know ideas uh, that I have and things that are important to me like for example how on earth do you successfully reaccommodate ex-offenders into society? how do you help them to be well received to have the skills to have the knowledge to have the support to be able to reintegrate and so on that's one of my main thrusts because as high sheriff, you are effectively the head of the judiciary in Lancashire for a year. And so not only do you sort of support um, the dignity of the crown and the judiciary, but actually I'm really interested in the people that appear before them, if you will, <clears throat> and, um, and, and why, you know, how, how can that be um, sort of ameliorated in some way in terms of reducing the number of people that actually have to, to that end up appearing in court, and um, and to that end i'm talking to a lot of social groups um i just had confirmation i'll be talking to a lot of youth councils um throughout lancashire um the youth services have been extremely helpful with me uh, enabling me to meet large groups of them on online which i will do uh, over the next three or four months um but going back to how you're appointed you are um when you're appointed as a deputy lieutenant you're one of about between 45 and 50 people in the county who support the Lord Lieutenant, who is the Queen's representative in the county. And the high sheriff position um, is an interesting one because you're effectively appointed by the monarch, but you're recommended by the Lord Lord Lieutenant, the monarch's representative in the county. And this has been going on throughout the country, probably, oh goodness me, from about sort of 848, thereabouts, um, and then from about the 1200s, 1280 thereabouts, um, there's been a high sheriff of Lancashire who basically is beholden to the Duke of Lancaster. There has been a Duke of Lancaster um, since the sort of late 1200s, and that has been the monarch, Mm. uh, with the result that uniquely in this county, the high sheriff hangs his or her coat of arms in the Shreeple Hall in Lancaster Castle, um, underneath the monarch's shield. So, because Queen Elizabeth II has been on the throne for such a long time, uh, they're having to make more room for the High high Sheriff's Shields underneath, uh, because she's been on the throne for such a long time. In fact, next year it's her 70th year, and it's a platinum jubilee which will be a very very exciting year for all of us particularly here in Lancashire because of our close association with the Queen um and so you are actually asked three years in advance of taking up the the post and you're not allowed to tell anybody the duchy counties are the only ones in which you cannot tell anybody you're going to be the high sheriff um, because the Queen some four weeks before the appointment will actually prick a piece of vellum, which has your name written on it, with a bodkin, um, like a sewer's bodkin. And that's that's been done since, I think, Elizabeth I. It's the most extraordinary routine. And of course, because of COVID, this had to be done remotely. So when I spoke to um, one of the, um, the lawyers uh, later that day, he said, um, Her Majesty has, has pricked the vellum and... Um, you you can now announce that you're going to be the High Sheriff of Lancashire. And he said, uh, we did it by Zoom. She was in um, uh, Windsor and they were down in Whitehall. It was the most extraordinary situation when you think about it. Uh, So, you know, the monarch has become modern in terms of how she does things. And I think, you know, for someone of her age, um, she's the most remarkable woman, she really is.
0: No, she definitely is. And finally, I just wanted to finish with saying that you've had such a successful career and just everything you've been saying, it's you sort of, it feels like you never stop. You're always seeking to sort of help people and help local and things like that. Going forward, what's the future for you? What's the future, do you think?
1: Goodness you think me. I'll go Down. <laughs> I think that depends on an awful lot of things, you know, how long the body supports me and how long the mind is active. Um, I I would like to think, to be honest with you, that um, I think in a family business, it's rather different than many others. Um, You know, I will remain a director of the board, but at some point, I I, I, I hope I will have a successor. Um, That is a very confidential matter and not something which, you know, I'm talking about openly at this particular point in time. But yes, uh, I intend that there will be a successor to take over as chairman of this business from me at some point um, over the next um, few years. It might be a little way off yet, um, but I'm I'm very very well supported by a very very skilled chief financial officer and chief operating officer. They're my two wingmen, if you will, um, to use that term in this business and. Um, I know that uh, Nigel, my COO, has been absolutely brilliant in taking on lots of responsibility for the day-to-day operations of this business. And so we operate as a team. And um, I know that during my high-shape year, Nigel has said, look, you know, we'll support you to the absolute hilt if there are things you can't do or if you can't be available to do things. And, and that's wonderful. And um, so in the future, as, as I go forward, I think it's probably likely I may you know, drop one or two of my responsibilities to spend more time with the family. And particularly if and when my daughters get married and have a family or have partners, and I hope they do at some point, um, it'd be wonderful to get on my hands and knees and play with puppets and push cars around the carpet and do that sort of thing. Um, because uh, I, I do love entertaining young people. I do have, um, this is unique by the way, you've probably never seen this in the chairman's office before, for your eyes only. I have have a a cupboard full of puppets. They're all my mates. And so people say, how on earth do you stay sane, you know, with all this responsibility and all the things you do? Um, Actually, I just like to have a little bit of fun. You know, I mean, there's Sophie Snake here, who's a little bit of a character, um, and, um, you know, frightens people to death when she appears on screen sometimes. But um, anyway. there you go. Uh, it's, it's great fun for making people smile, actually. Um, it takes people out of themselves sometimes, and it does the same for me, you know. So um, a gentleman from China came here once, and uh, he came into my office, and he said, you must be the only chairman in the world who's got who's got a cupboard full of puppets, and I said, you're probably right. <laughs> so, so there you go. Yeah. yeah,
0: well, it's definitely put a smile on my face, then, and thank you so much for for coming on and chatting
1: to me today no it's been an absolute pleasure Lucy it's been a great conversation
0: thanks for listening and we'll see you next week to keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from